KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. The weather outside is frightful everywhere but San Diego. It's not just going to be those northern areas that feel this Arctic blast. It's going to be really all the way down even to, you know, some areas approaching even like the Mexican border, for example. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Heinemann. Maureen is off. This is KPBS Midday Edition. An update on local evictions. So basically, we're now in the stage where all of these evictions that would have been filed during that period of time when there were moratoriums in place have now been unpaused. Hear the sounds of the season, mariachi style, and a new Godzilla book perfect for a coffee table near you. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. If you're driving on the freeway right now or just looking out your window at work, you see sunny skies and feel some comfortably cool temperatures. By Christmas Day, the forecast is expected to be even milder here in San Diego County. But meanwhile, just about every other part of the U.S. is preparing for a bitterly cold winter storm powered by an Arctic blast. If you're like me, you might have travel plans for the Christmas holiday. So what does brutal weather elsewhere mean for us? Joining me now is Brian Adams, meteorologist with the National Weather Service, to figure it out. Brian, welcome to Midday. Hello, thank you for having me. So let's get right to it. What is happening with this winter storm over the next few days? The winter storm we have um, farther east across the country is a rapidly developing low-pressure system, um, what some even refer to as kind of a bomb cyclone with how rapidly it is strengthening, you know, managing to pull in some ridiculously cold air from, you know, more Arctic portions of the globe. Um, even just this morning, closer to the Canadian border, up along the, you know, the Montana-Canada border, we did see some observed wind chill temperatures of approaching minus 60 to minus 70 degrees once that really Arctic air began to filter farther southward into the country. And that's going to really be felt across a lot of the country going forward over the next few days. Um, looking at high temperatures in portions of the upper Midwest and the Northern Plains to be, you know, getting below zero over the next few days. Minneapolis, I believe, we're looking at highs of around like minus four for the through the weekend. And then looking at, you know, that colder air to kind of keep going through the next few days, portions of the Great Lakes and into the northeastern United States dropping into the teens. And it's not just going to be those northern areas that feel this Arctic blast. It's going to be really all the way down even to, you know, some areas approaching even like the Mexican border, for example, you know, portions of Southern Texas will be dropping into the twenties for low temperatures. We typically look at, look at like South Florida, Miami, for example, as like a, you know, one of the traditionally warmest spots in the country during the winter months. Um, we are actually going to be winding up warmer than them over the next, uh, going through the weekend here. Uh, I believe we're looking at temperatures in Southern Florida to top out maybe only in the lower sixties. You know, if you're looking up even a little bit farther north of there, but like closer to Orlando or Tampa, for example, they may only get into the lower 50s for a high later on this weekend, 
Whereas here, we're going to be sitting probably in the middle 70s in a lot of spots. Okay, so it is the first official day of winter. How is it that it will be freezing in other parts of the country and sunny and mild here in San Diego? So typically to get these really, really cold temperatures, like we're going to be expecting later on this weekend across most of the country, you kind of need something to push it away from those more Arctic latitudes. You need something to really push it farther south. What we have going on just off to our west out over the Pacific Ocean is a really strong area of high pressure that's kind of nudging its way in. And as it strengthens, it's kind of forcing all of that colder air to dive southward. And that's, you know, that coupled with a very active jet stream is what's helping to, you know, allow that storm system over the central United States now to kind of rapidly strengthen. Um, So that area of high pressure is kind of what's ultimately driving all of this and forcing all of that colder air you know, into areas east of the Rockies, whereas we here kind of reap the benefits of this high pressure and wind up under that much warmer air. How long will it last? We're looking at this to um, kind of remain in place through much of the weekend, not really looking at much of a, you know, substantial pattern change until probably sometime during the, you know, early to maybe even middle portions of next week. This area of high pressure is going to largely remain kind of anchored in place through probably the early portions of next week before it finally you know, weakens and moves off to the east, resulting then in kind of more of just a more mild pattern for the vast majority of the country, which means, you know, obviously areas east of the Rockies will warm up from the frigid air that they're going to be experiencing this weekend, whereas then we will also kind of meet them in the middle, so to say, and cool down a little bit. Um, but that will also and also sort of open the door, so to say, for them, for there to be some potential precipitation chances then uh, approaching the west coast as we enter the early and middle portions of next week. Okay, Brian, let's get to the important stuff, travel. I have a flight out of San Diego Friday night headed to Houston to be with my family. What is the worst day for travel, or is it all going to be bad? As a whole, I mean, you have to factor in already. I mean, this weekend in general, the holiday weekend is already going to be kind of hectic travel-wise, but um, it seems like especially Friday and Saturday do seem like they're going to be pretty rough because those more you know those more southern portions of the country not quite used to this extreme cold um you know so so travel there is already going to be hectic whether it's you know just the typical holiday air traffic versus then the ground traffic with any potential for you know really cold air and potentially any wintry precipitation involved there as well with these a lot of these like some more southern areas you don't we're not typically used to seeing you know more wintry impacts so Definitely want to budget, you know, more than you more than enough travel time that you would ever really think of if you're going to be visiting um, really anywhere approaching the Gulf Coast later on this weekend. Okay, so for people who are staying in town, just how nice is it going to be for San Diego this holiday weekend? The weather here will be more reminiscent of spring or maybe even early summer in a lot of locations. For Saturday and Sunday in particular, we're looking at high temperatures along the immediate coast to reach probably the lower to middle 70s. And then if you go just a little bit farther inland, maybe closer to like the 15, for example, uh, we will probably see a lot of locations reaching or even exceeding the 80 degree mark. So it'll be pretty darn nice through a lot of this weekend. I've been talking to Brian Adams, meteorologist with the National Weather Service. Brian, I've got my fingers crossed for my flight and for all those who will be traveling this weekend. Thanks for being here, Brian. Yes, thank you. And fingers crossed for you as well. Hope it goes smoothly.
New eviction cases are on the rise, according to data from the San Diego County Superior Court, showing that the once looming crisis of housing displacement has begun to materialize in the region. iNews Source reporter Danielle Dawson has been looking into what's happening and joins me now with more. Danielle, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So preliminary court filings for eviction proceedings reached a five-year high in October. Tell me about what's happening. Yeah, so... Over the course of the pandemic, you know, we had some eviction protections in place. And now that we're moving past the expiration of many of these protections, a lot of property owners are now starting to file for eviction. Experts are saying that this is kind of the beginning of the tsunami of evictions that was kind of talked about when uh, cities and counties were exploring implementing various rental assistance programs. So basically, we're now in the stage where all of these evictions that would have been filed during that period of time when there were moratoriums in place have now been unpaused. Advocates have been saying that the pandemic will lead to an eviction crisis, and now they say it's finally happening. What's led to this increase? Yeah, so a couple things um, have led to this increase. Uh, One thing is the expiration of the rental assistance program. Um, You know, aside from just providing uh, tenants who are experiencing financial hardship due to the pandemic, a uh, you know sum of money that could help cover any loss of income. Um, the these programs uh, had uh, additional protections in place that prevented a property owner from evicting their tenant while they had an application processing. And now that the counties, um, you know, in uh, this in the cities in this area are no longer accepting applications for rental assistance those protections are no longer available. Um, Another factor that's led to this increase is the expiration of the no-fault eviction moratorium in the city of San Diego. Um, That expired on September 30th. Um, And so housing experts say that that has definitely helped, you know, this wave of evictions that we're seeing. Um, The other kind of factor that uh, plays into this is the uh, housing market and how the rent prices for many of the units in this area have increased significantly over the last couple of months. And so many tenants who are already extremely financially rent burdened um, are seeing, you know, more of their income go to rent. Um, And so all of those factors kind of combined have led to what we're seeing right now with the uh, processes going um, at the court. What did you learn about what led to people filing these claims when you looked at some of the cases now in court? Yeah, so the data shows that nearly all of the cases that were filed in October were classified as civil limited unlawful detainers, which means that the tenant owes less than $25,000 in rental debt. Um, And uh, these are also uh, cases that could have been no-fault evictions. The court does not track fault status. So the, you know, about 1,070 cases that were designated as civil limited could have also been individuals who were subject to protections under the no-fault eviction moratorium. You spoke to some people who are in this situation. What did you learn? Yeah, so many of these people who are now in this position where they're facing eviction are, you know, frustrated, they're angry, and they're also scared. Um, You know, one tenant I spoke to at a rally recently, uh, Liddy Morales, she's a single mom of three living in San Ysidro and, you know, has been trying to pay her her rental um, debt uh, that she wasn't able to get covered by the emergency rental assistance program. Um, And uh, so she's struggling. Um, Here's a clip of her. 
I'm trying to pay, but it's still I'm struggling. Like say, I have I have family, and my my kids need me, and I'm not able to be there because I have to go to work because I have to pay all, all those almost six thousand dollars. That is what I the debt that I have. Mm, and you've touched on this, but I mean, again, how much of this is happening because tenant protections put in place during the pandemic have expired? I've, housing experts I spoke to have, you know, really echoed that this is a lot of um, what's happening now is because of the fact that there are limited tenant protections in place. Um, you know, this is essentially a period where we've unpaused many of the, um, you know, eviction cases that would have been filed previously. But many of those could have, you know, also been a part of um, stronger tenant protections um, that, uh, you know, the no-fault eviction moratorium, had that been continued, many of these tenants could still be in their homes. And what tenant protections remain now? Um, Only one uh, moratorium is still in place um, in the city of San Diego, applying to non-payment. However, this is very specific and limited. Um, The uh, new policy uh, that was instituted um, earlier this year only covers rental debt accrued after July 1st um, due to the city's participation in the state's um, ERA program or emergency rental assistance program that limited um, what they could do in terms of uh, you know additional protections prior to June 30th because that was a regulation set by the state. For people in this situation facing eviction, what are their prospects for finding a new place to live? You know, advocates and experts say that once someone is evicted from their apartment or from their home, it's that much harder to get back into a, you know, a new unit or a new place. The rental market as it is right now is incredibly competitive and having eviction on your record is something that a lot of property owners might you know, deny an applicant for. A lot of these tenants are also low income. Uh, rental requirements are a pretty big component to that where a lot of units um, on their application are requesting, you know, two and a half, three times the, uh, you know, rental rate in income, just given how competitive it is and how, um, you know, the housing market trend has been pushing rents up. Um, there are very limited, uh, number of affordable units. So it's very, very competitive and very difficult for someone to find an apartment as soon as they've been evicted. Hmm. What organizations work with people facing eviction? Um, and, and what are they telling you about what's happening to their clients and if they're able to help? Yeah, so Legal Aid Society of San Diego is one of the biggest um, you know, supports for those who are facing eviction. Um, they help their uh, you know, tenants who come to them work through the legal processes because it can get kind of complicated. Other organizations in the city, uh, like PATH, for instance, that help with homelessness, they have a very narrow ability to help people. Um, so they're kind of scared and frustrated, you know, that people are falling into homelessness because of eviction, um, faster than they can help house people who are already experiencing homelessness. Um, and that's kind of a a gap that, um, you know, allows people to fall through the cracks. A lot of the homeless services, um, you know, available to people, uh, right now, or a lot of the support services that are available to people who are experiencing housing insecurity, um, are only available as soon as you're homeless. Um, and so, you know, those few resources that are available to help people stay in their homes, like Legal Aid Society, are, you know, swamped with clients coming to them for help. I've been speaking with iNewsource reporter Danielle Dawson. Danielle, thank you very much. Thank you. iNewsource is an independently funded nonprofit partner of KPBS. <music> 
KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. I'm M.G. Perez with Jade Heinemann. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Schools across the county are closed for the holidays, but COVID-19 does not take a break, and the infection rate is again surging. It's an unwelcome reminder that many children are still feeling the effects of school shutdowns caused by the coronavirus pandemic. This fall, I spoke with Anya Kamenetz, former education correspondent with NPR and author of the new book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. For the book, she spoke to kids and families across the country from a wide variety of backgrounds. Here's our conversation. Two things I would say. One is that they were stretched to their breaking point by the various stresses of the pandemic, economic, social, the fear, the political division. And the other thread, of course, is the love. I mean, every family I talked with, um, as hard as it was, they found solace in being together even during the darkest parts of this pandemic. What do we know today about the impact of the school closures and what it did to children? We know it's going to take several years for children to resume the test score trajectory that they were on before the pandemic. That's an average, obviously. Some kids are are fine right now, and some kids uh, might never catch up. We also know that there's been a huge downturn in public school enrollment as well as in college going. You know, some of those kids are homeschooled or they're in private schools and they're going to be fine, but some of those kids have dropped out and they have drifted into paid work. And that's very bothersome um, for the future of this country. In your introduction, you write that you were thinking of this book as a little like restorative justice or therapy. Why do you feel that approach was the best way to tell this story? I just feel like we tend to rush past the pain of kids because it is painful for us. I mean, everybody who has a child understands that you're affected differently by the sound or the sight of a suffering child. And unfortunately, that sentiment oftentimes leads us to not pay attention to what is actually happening. So I wrote this book to make sure we took a good hard look at what happened to kids during the beginning of this pandemic. And with that hope, you know, in restorative justice comes, you know, figuring out what the harms are and how we redress it. And in a therapeutic context, you start talking about what happened, because again, that's going to help you identify how you're going to feel better about it. So we have been here before in the sense that your book uh, talks about other examples where schools were closed down and the impact. One of those was in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Tell us what happened to those kids. Yeah. um, So I was down there as a young reporter. Um, I I went to high school in New Orleans as well. And what we found is that kids were out of school, uh, usually for a few weeks. The public schools in the city shuttered, uh, were closed for the fall semester of 2005. And mostly never reopened because they were all replaced with charter schools uh, over time. Those kids suffered extreme academic setbacks that took a couple of years actually to recover the ground that they lost, even though they weren't out of school very long. And the impact on youth in general, we saw a downturn in college going, a downturn in high school graduation rates that persisted for up to a decade after the storm. So your book talks about schools are much more than just places of learning, but also essential for food and nutrition, childcare, and health care. Do you think that government and school officials could have done more to fill those gaps while schools were closed? 
Absolutely, they could have and should have. Um, I, I point to countries in Europe that, despite the fact that they struggled as well with the pandemic and various waves of the pandemic, they made a concerted effort to prioritize children for reopening. And that's exactly what we never did in this country. We obviously had red states that opened everything up with almost no precautions. And then we had blue states that allowed our bars and restaurants to be open while schools and daycares were shut. And that's the part that's so hard for me to understand, not only as a reporter, but as a parent. So full disclosure, I was a special ed teacher with San Diego Unified for seven years before taking this job. You profile those students with special needs who are especially impacted. Tell us about them. Yes. Thanks for bringing that up. So, you know, 14% of kids have disabilities. It's not some tiny margin. And for the most part, what families told me was that Zoom was not an effective delivery system for the education, the socialization, and the therapies that those kids needed. And what you see with kids with disabilities is that not only do they not make progress, but they can go backwards. They can regress because these are developmental disorders and they follow developmental pathways. And so we're seeing so many struggles and with oftentimes the school struggles and the social struggles come mental health struggles as well. I mean, one of the most heartbreaking families that I talked with was it was a child in um, Hawaii and she had multiple severe disabilities. She was autistic and nonverbal, but she loved school and she was in a mainstream classroom. Her, her classmates surrounded her with love and affection. When she was cut off from all of that, she had no real way of understanding why. And she became horribly depressed and regressed in a number of ways. And her mother says that she just, she's never been the same. So there is another population that you address, and that is uh, students along the U.S.-Mexico border, closer to home for us here in San Diego. Tell us about the experiences of those children. Yeah, you know, I mean, this would have taken a whole other book, and I hope that there is another book out there. But as we know, you know, MPP, the Remain in Mexico policy, created a really upsetting situation on the U.S. border. And what I talk, I talked to professionals, a lawyer and a, a couple of psychologists who dealt with um, kids in that situation, and occasionally migrant children who did cross the border during the pandemic were quarantined all by themselves. So it was a really um, awful situation. And, um, you know, the long-term issue as well, obviously there's been an interruption in kind of immigration patterns. And so we're seeing that now with, with the flow of kids over the border and, and trying to resettle them and reintegrate them, which is obviously a long-term concern. Anya, you say in your book that the story is not over. So like the title of your book asks, where do we go now? I would love to see renewed emphasis on the well-being of children and families in our politics. It was really disappointing when the uh, Inflation Reduction Act was passed. Um, you know, it was a huge Democratic victory on on climate and on uh, health care. But they left out the provisions that had been in the broader uh, Joe Biden's broader agenda when it came to children and families. And a lot of people thought this was going to be the moment that we'd finally get subsidized child care federally guaranteed paid leave and a child tax credit. So I really hope that those, I don't just hope, but I would exhort anyone who's paying attention to politics and wants to get involved to say, you know, this, this can't wait any longer. I like to end on an encouraging note. Where is the hope in this situation? You know, the hope is always going to be found in the love for kids and the fact that kids have a chance to grow. And all of the families I followed during the pandemic they all felt that there were silver linings in simply being able to be together when the world stopped. And so I think, I hope that we all kind of get a chance to 
keep that in mind as we go forward to a, a you know a more normal and a busier world that that there's something really magical about being able to be together with your loving family when you can. I have been speaking with Anya Kamenetz, author of the new book, The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. Anya, thank you. Thanks for having me. San Diego jazz trumpeteer Gilbert Castellanos has a new album out, his first in almost a decade. The record also represents a triumph return to music for Castellanos after a rocky few years. KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans takes a closer look. It's been a period of waiting and uncertainty for Gilbert Castellanos, local jazz trumpet great and the founder of the Young Lions Jazz Conservancy. Since 2019, his career was interrupted by debilitating jaw and mouth pain and a string of major surgeries to correct serious dental problems caused by playing the trumpet. And then there was the pandemic. But Castellanos is back and he is deeply, unflinchingly grateful. Every time I play, I treat it like it's like my last day living. I treat it like it's like the altar when I step on that bandstand. I call it the altar of joy because it's a privilege to do what I do. My whole attitude has changed when it comes to music and who knows if I'll ever get to play music again. And, and I want to make it count every time I play. Cassianos just released a new jazz album called Esperame en el Cielo. It translates to Wait for Me in Heaven. It's a collection of the songs that provided solace during a dark time and also hope that soon he'd play the trumpet again. The thing about this album that's so special to me is that it really kind of represents the period of, of everything that I've been going through for these last three years. You know, it's been just, my life has just been turned upside down. And this music is the music that got me through that. Jazz pianist and composer Joshua White arranged the songs on the album for a five-piece band. Piano, drums, bass, alto saxophone, and Castellanos on trumpet. The album begins with the chaotic and fragmented opening notes of Bilad as Sudan. Castellanos' trumpet floats in with arpeggios and truncated phrases. It almost sounds like you're going to go into a ballad, and then all of a sudden it's just like a sucker punch, and we go into this hard bop uh, melody that's just kind of in your face. Another track is Big P, written by American jazz legend Jimmy Heath for his brother, bassist Percy. Cassianus wanted to record it as a tribute to the Heath family. He says the track hasn't been recorded much. The past is a big part of jazz, he says, and it's central to the way he teaches music. In jazz in particular, I think that, that the history plays a huge, huge role. I, I look at it as being your DNA for becoming a great jazz musician and having your own voice. 
The title track, Esperame en el Cielo, is a mournful Latin American piece. It's a beautiful bolero, and to this day, it just brings tears to my eyes. The original song has lyrics, which are crafted into the trumpet melody. Castellanos delivers a low, understated trumpet sound. It almost seems like singing. That simple, subdued song is the one he spent the most time working on. I know when you listen to the album, you hear some of the more complex and um, just more intricate arrangements, but this one is, is the one that is my heart and soul. Castellano still has one more surgery to repair his jaw, but for the time being, he's basking in the joy of this album. It's a love letter to perseverance, hope, and to music. Julia Dixon-Evans, KPBS News. San Diego jazz trumpeteer Gilbert Castellanos' new album, Espérame en el Cielo, is out now. Even without the lyrics, the music is so familiar and guaranteed to get you in the holiday spirit. The song, of course, is Feliz Navidad, delivered with the sound of symphonic mariachis. Mariachis are a big part of the Christmas season in the Mexican culture, providing a musical gift to the rest of the world as well. Southwestern College in Chula Vista was the first to offer training and a degree in mariachi music. Jeff Nevin developed the curriculum and is the founder and conductor of Southwestern's group, Mariachi Garibaldi, and director of all things mariachi at the college and well beyond. He joins us now. Jeff, bienvenido. <laughs> Bienvenidos. <laughs> Muchas gracias. You began your music career at a very young age, playing the trumpet. How did that happen? So I, I was born in Chicago, but I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. My dad actually played trumpet when he was young and into college and medical school. So he played probably up until 24, 25 years old. So when I was a kid, I used to hear my dad playing trumpet a lot. My mom tells the story that, you know, at Christmas time, actually, my dad... That's when he would pull out his horn and my mom would play piano and he would play trumpet and my brothers would run away screaming and say, you know, what are you making that horrible noise for? And for some reason, when I was two, three years old, um, I used to sit in front of the trumpet and kind of stare at my dad. And uh, so when I was, I guess, 10 years old, fifth grade, our elementary school had a band program and I said, maybe I want to do that. The, um, the teacher demonstrated all the different instruments and I said, nah, I think the trumpet's the one I want to, <laughs> I'd, I'd want to focus on. Jeff, you are not Mexican and do not have any Latino heritage, and yet by the time you were in high school, you were invited to join a mariachi band. How did that happen? Yeah, so in Tucson, Arizona, it has uh, you know Latino Mexican American culture um, that's pretty strong. Um, there's a youth mariachi in Tucson that's fairly well known. It has a funny name. It's called Los Changuitos Feos. Uh, Los Ugly Changuitos monkeys. Feos. Yeah, exactly. The ugly little monkeys. And um, the short version of the story is that in the mariachi. I felt really confident. I felt really good. What makes a mariachi band? What are the traditional instruments? 
I'll say it's very similar to a chamber orchestra, if, believe it or not. I mean, we think of mariachi and it's like, oh yeah, I've heard them and it has a certain sound. Violins are one of the main instruments. Trumpets, mariachi trumpet has a very specific style, but it's the same instrument we play in the symphony orchestra. Then we have three kinds of guitars. One is called the guitarron, which is a real big, it's about the size of a cello, but you play it like a guitar. There's a vihuela, which is a smaller instrument. So it's actually smaller than a standard guitar. And then one standard nylon string guitar. And then of course, voices. The, the singing in mariachi really is something that captivates a lot of people. And so you've been talking about the symphonic mariachi sound. How did that connection happen? The genesis of the idea really is just to recreate the beginning of the modern mariachi, which actually was a combination of the folk music with the classical music. The symphony is often paired with the ballet at this time of year for the Nutcracker. Tell us about this very familiar piece of Russian music and how the Mexican flavor influences it. You know, just when I heard Trepet, I can just imagine the mariachi playing that. And I just, I knew that this would make something that Tchaikovsky would say, wow, you know, that's a really good version of that. If Tchaikovsky happened to find himself someplace where those were the musicians he had available, he would have written it more or less that way. But it's fun for us to play with different styles and different expectations. And that really is something that Mariachis do all the time, is to play music from a lot of different, um, different cultures. Southwestern College offers the most extensive curriculum in this type of music. How do you teach students to become a mariachi? So we do have the world's first college degree. The technique that you need to play mariachi violin is the same technique you need to play classical violin, the te technique you need to play trumpet. You need to breathe, you need to buzz your lips, you need to know your scales, you need to, the technique is fundamentally the same. The degree we created is actually 90% the same as the normal music degree that we already offered, but it's a degree in music with the mariachi specialization. What we're preparing those students for is, on the one hand, to be professional musicians. Mariachis, you know, are not doing too bad. If you're good and you can sing and you can play different instruments and you have a, a, a strong repertoire, there's a heck of a lot of work in towns like San Diego, Los Angeles, um, you know, all over the Southwest. When they graduate, they're offered several different jobs and they, they literally have their pick of which place they would want to live in order to be a full-time mariachi teacher or music teacher who also teaches mariachi and then they can continue to perform on the side if they want to. You are part of the Mariachi Scholarship Foundation, supporting education in schools and providing college scholarships to students who graduate from mariachi programs. Tell us about the fundraising concert happening Thursday. So we raise money with programs like this concert um, to give college scholarships to those students when they graduate. So the high school kids, the high school mariachi students get a scholarship to go on to college at, if they get good grades and, and stay in school. So the concert that we have on Thursday, Las Posadas, is a Mexican 
a traditional Mexican Christmas celebration. Las Posadas is something that Mexican folks traditionally celebrate on Christmas Eve. So what they do is they reenact Mary and Joseph going into Bethlehem, following the North Star. There's a song they sing called Las Posadas. And posada means like shelter. So it's a song requesting shelter. And then we do different songs that are praising um, Mary, the Virgin Mary. And then we have songs that are really just like a party that we would have afterwards. And um, it's a really, really nice depiction of a traditional Mexican Christmas Eve. Where and when is the concert, and how do we get tickets? Concert is this Thursday, 7.30 p.m. at the Balboa Theater downtown. Tickets, you can get them at Ticketmaster or go to Mariachi SD, SD for San Diego, mariachisd.org. That's the Mariachi Scholarship Foundation website. Um, you can also make a donation to help support the scholarships and Mariachi education in San Diego there, and we have linked directly to the tickets. I have been speaking with Jeff Nevin, Professor of Music and Director of Mariachi Activities at Southwestern College and Ambassador of Mariachi Music. Jeff, gracias. Muchas gracias a usted. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. At 68, Japan's Godzilla is nowhere near ready for retirement. The iconic monster that was born out of an atomic blast is poised for a cinematic rematch with Kong in 2024. Plus, he is the topic of a new coffee table book that makes a perfect last-minute Christmas gift. In an excerpt from today's Cinema Junkie podcast, KPBS's resident Godzilla fan Beth Accomando speaks with author Graham Skipper about Godzilla, the ultimate illustrated guide. Graham, you have just written a book, Godzilla, the official guide to the king of the monsters. Now, before we talk about the book, I just want to find out, how did you fall in love with Godzilla? So when I was a kid, my grandparents lived out in the country, and they had one of those gigantic satellite dishes in the backyard. And my grandparents had one of these, and so they got HBO. And I would turn on HBO and watch movies all day. And I remember very specifically, I I can't remember how old I was, eight or nine probably, and they were showing some movie on HBO, but the ad for the upcoming movie was King Kong versus Godzilla. King Kong versus Godzilla, heading for their colossal collision, shattering every obstacle that stands between them in the most fantastic rampage of annihilation ever recorded on film. 
I had seen neither movie, but I knew, of course, who King Kong was. I knew who Godzilla was. I was definitely a monster kid. I was into monsters. And I thought, well, obviously I'm going to like this movie. So I stayed. I watched King Kong vs. Godzilla. Totally fell in love. King Kong vs. Godzilla, it was my gateway. Uh, still one of my favorites. I mean, objectively, maybe not one of the best of the movies, but it holds a very special place in my heart. And what can people expect from this book? So, you know, when I was growing up, I the thing that got me into monsters in general was my parents had bought me a picture book that had all the different monsters in it. What it did was it basically went through and it told like a brief history of every character and then had a bunch of really beautiful pictures of them. And so when offered the opportunity to write this book, I said, I want to write the Godzilla book for that kid. I want to write a Godzilla book where a kid who's 8, 9, 10 gets this book and opens it up, and this whole world is just presented before them. You know, when they're done watching the movies, they can go back, they can read the book, they can learn more about how the movie was made. And that, that to me, I just found so inspiring personally, as a kid growing up with a book like that, that the thought of having a book like that for others uh, was really exciting. And And of course, it's not just for kids. I mean, this is something that there's a lot of interesting information that I found through my research. It's all out there, but this is uh, the first time that everything has really been contained into one single really beautiful sort of collectible edition. And I've already gotten some incredible feedback from people who have like shots of their kids, you know, sitting in their bunk bed, like reading the book, you know, totally engrossed. And that just fills me with so much joy because Godzilla, I think, brings joy to the world. And I know Godzilla has brought joy to me through my life. And so if this book can bring a similar kind of joy to, to people, especially to kids, as they're, as they're just beginning to form their, their cinematic love. I, I, I hope that's what sticks with folks, is, is that it's just a, it's sort of a, a joyful celebration and deep dive into, into a thing that, that uh, we all, into a thing that we all love. Well, as a longtime fan of Godzilla and someone who's collected far too much stuff, I just loved the book and the photos are so amazing. And you pulled out some stuff that I've never seen before. So what was it like going through the Toho archives and trying to select what you wanted to put in the book? I mean, it was incredible. You know, so Toho offered us the the rare opportunity to just have total free access to their photo archives. So this included, uh, you know, behind the scenes stills. It included, you know, stills from the films that were really high quality, really beautiful. It included publicity stuff, some really cool, some of my favorite stuff are some of the lobby cards that are in there that are uh, these sort of amalgams of like different shots from the films in sort of an artistic way. Uh, yeah, I mean, basically like I would just go through and my day was I would get up, I would watch a movie and then I would write a draft of a chapter about it while doing like research and, and all of that. And then I would go through that film's folder in the photo archive and I would just pick out, you know, the shots that spoke to me. And at a certain point, I mean, I had way too many pictures picked, you know, and I'm sending it to the publisher and they're like, we don't have this many pages, you know, <laughs> we can't include all of these. So it was a matter of trying to go, okay, well, what have I not seen before? What are some of the most iconic shots? Again, keeping that kid in me in mind, like, what's the picture that's going to really send me through the roof here? You know, what's that shot of King Ghidorah that I'm going to be super stoked about? And just trying to pick those out, I mean, it was almost impossible. There was a ton more in there that, you know, we just couldn't include due to space. 
Um, but I think that we picked some really cool stuff. And I mean, I especially love, you know, even just the poster images. So at the beginning of every chapter, we have the Japanese poster for for the film. And and I even just those, I, I love. You know, they're so expressive and dynamic, very different from what American posters are. And so I'm really glad that we got to include all those. Uh, yeah, the, the pictures are just astonishing and it's and they're so high quality. I mean, you know, you've seen in the book, I mean, some of these are, are huge, two full page, you know, spreads and the, the quality is just pristine. So so we were really, really lucky to have that opportunity to, to, to go through those archives and, and just sort of take whatever we wanted. And do you have a personal favorite Godzilla film? I know that's like choosing which of your children do you like. I mean, that's yeah, that's so hard. I mean, I, I will say the one I, I would want to champion the most is All Monsters Attack. All Monsters Attack is is often derided as as maybe the worst of this franchise, um, which <laughs> might be partly why I'm why I'm uh, drawn to it. It was one of Ishiro Honda's favorites. It was one of the ones where he was given essentially no time to make the movie and essentially no money, and so he he made this very personal little film about a little boy who's bullied uh, relentlessly. And this boy has a, a an imaginary land that he goes to, which is Monster Island, where he hangs out with Manila. Computer, computer, boko kaiju to ni tsurete ike. Go, go, And that's kind of how where he goes, uh, not just to escape, but also to kind of learn, you know, things about himself and how he can stand up for himself more and how he can. You know, how do you how do you fight bad guys? How do you get brave enough to fight them? And Manila teaches him these lessons. Uh, a lot of the movie is, especially the monster stuff, is all clips from old movies. But I know Honda considered it one of his favorites. I think that despite the fact that they're reusing old footage, that movie really speaks to me just from a from a character standpoint. I, I think it's maybe the most character-centric uh, of all the movies, and, and it's the one that... I don't know. Whenever, whenever I watch it, it just brings me. It brings me a lot of joy. And I am telling you, watch all monsters attack. It is Ishiro Honda approved and Graham Skipper approved. So there you go. All right. Well, I want to thank you very much for not just talking about the book, but talking about the King of the Monsters. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I always love talking about Godzilla with you. And again, I'm just honored that I got to be a part of Godzilla's legacy in some small way. And I hope that this Christmas season, a lot of people get a Godzilla book for Christmas. That would be really fun. It's a perfect stocking stuffer, although it's way too big for a stocking. Well, unless unless it's Godzilla's <laughs> stocking. I mean, then you could definitely fit it in there. That was Beth Accomando speaking with author Graham Skipper. You can still order Godzilla, the ultimate illustrated guide in time for Christmas. And check out the new Cinema Junkie podcast to find out the grueling conditions suit actors endured to bring these monsters to life. Don't forget to watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 p.m. on KPBS Television. And join us again tomorrow for KPBS Midday Edition at noon. And if you ever miss a show, you can find the Midday Edition podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jade Hindman with M.G. Perez. Thanks for listening. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more.
mcasd.org.